We have a reading from 1 Peter 5, 6 through 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all who are in Christ. This is the word of God. What a great phrase. Hope that is alive, eternally alive, and hope that brings life. Living hope. Jesus Christ. As we wrap up 1 Peter, go ahead and find 1 Peter in your Bibles or on your device or whatever you're using. As we wrap up 1 Peter this morning, we're reminded of our, of our title, <clears throat> our series title, Hardships, Holiness, and Hope. Hardships, Holiness, and Hope. And Peter has walked us through these things. And now he comes to the end. We come to the end of the letter. And, and we are um, trying to discern what is Peter going to say to us to kind of wrap this, this thing up? What does he want us to leave with? Clearly, he wants to encourage us in these last few verses, doesn't he? He wants us to walk away um, encouraged in the hope of, of God and in the gospel. And so he's reminding them of the gospel in these last few verses that we're going to look at this morning that Andy just read for us. I'm going to present it to you this morning in three sets of twos. Two opposing powers, two ways to look at your life. And then we'll, we'll look at two ways that we live out the Christian life. So two opposing powers, two ways that we look at our life, and then two ways that we live out our lives. Truths that flow from the good news that Christ has won, Christ has done it, the gospel of God is winning, God is victorious, and so even in the midst of hardships and suffering, which they were facing and which you and I are facing, we can stand back and say that we have blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, 
and that we look forward to a day spent with him in his presence forever and ever. So first of all, two oppositional powers. Peter wants to remind these believers that there are two opposing powers in the world. The mighty hand of God and the roaring devil lion seeking to devour. And this is why there are hardships in the world, isn't it? Because there are these two opposing powers. This is what causes all the, all the commotion. This is what causes all the problems. We call it spiritual warfare. If you've been a Christian for more than a minute and been in church, you've heard that phrase. We are in the middle of a battle where we have an enemy who seeks to destroy us. We have an enemy who has created a system in this world that seeks to destroy us. Pastor Andrew just prayed it in his prayer. A system, an enemy that seeks to take our minds, our hearts, our eyes off of God and put them on something else. Which will you submit your life to? This is, this is kind of the, the question that Peter's asking without asking it. He doesn't ask it, you know, out loud. But it's kind of the question we walk away from. Who will we submit our lives to this morning? Will we, will we humble ourselves? Verse 6. Will we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Or are we going to give in to the roaring devil lion? Which one will we put ourselves under? And I know what you're thinking. A lot of you sitting here this morning, you're Christians. And so immediately you're thinking, yep. I, I do not put my life under the devil, right? I'm not doing voodoo. I'm not drawing pentagrams. I'm not sacrificing small animals in my backyard. I'm not doing any of that nonsense. I'm not playing my rock and roll backwards lo- looking for hidden messages. I'm not doing any of that. So therefore, I am free and clear from the roaring devil who seeks to devour me. But we are fools if we think that, aren't we? Why would Peter even write such a thing if it was as simple as that? So once again, we go back to the beginning, don't we? We go back to the garden where the devil tempted Eve. He didn't tempt Eve with just evil, did he? Do you remember? He tempted her with the knowledge of good and evil. Christian, that's important. That's important. Because what it tells us is that we have born into our hearts this this attitude, this thought that we can determine good and evil for ourselves. Isn't this the way that most of the world looks at God and eternity? As long as my good outweighs my bad, I'm good, I'm okay, right? And a lot of us as Christians, we, we, we embrace, yes, we're saved by faith, but then we walk through our lives, we seek to grow spiritually or be sanctified spiritually, and we revert back to the same old system. As long as I'm doing more good than bad, you know, I'm on God's good side. I have fellowship with God. I'm, ma- I'm maintaining my relationship with Jesus. And we're, and, we've, and we're rejecting the gospel and we're falling under the very trap that the devil is setting for us, aren't we? Understand, please understand that the same things, the same good things can become evil when they draw your heart away from God. 
Do you understand that? Two pastors doing the same kind of ministry in the same church, one can be doing it from a pure, two, you know, elders, two elders, one can do it from a pure uh, love for Christ and the church, and the other can do it for self-promotion. And it, on the outside to you and to me, it'll look like the same exact stuff, won't it? They're both showing up on time. They're both preaching the word. They're both making visits. They're both doing calls. And on the outside, it looks like they're both doing good, but actually one of them has fallen prey. Two parents raising the same kids in the same household. One of them is, is raising their child in order that they may grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And the other one is raising their child to fulfill them, to fulfill themselves. My children fulfill me. They make my life important. On the outside, it looks like both parents are doing good, both teaching their children right from wrong, but one of them has fallen prey. Two people sitting on the same couch watching the same movie, one of them can be doing it just to escape. The other one can be watching the story and comparing it to, to God's redemptive story and trying to learn. One has fallen prey. Do you see? Do you see? The devil is sneaky. He is an angel of light. He is roaring. So be humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves. Why? Because you got an enemy. Because you got an enemy. Verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Our suffering is the roaring of the lion, isn't it? It's the roaring of the devil trying to capture our hearts. What is suffering? Suffering is I have a desire and that desire is unmet. Right? That's what suffering is. You see, what the devil does is he, he causes you to elevate your earthly desires above the desire for God. So that when suddenly you're not getting that thing, it begins to destroy you. And your suffering is increased by the increase of your desire. Are you with me? Your suffering is increased because of the increase of the desire. You see, how does Satan cause suffering? He, by getting us to desire something more than we desire God. But for the person who desires God the most, when they go through a trial, they can step back and go, I got something you cannot take away from me. I, I, I have something that no, no loss of job, no loss of health, not even loss of life can steal from me. My greatest desire is constantly being met because I am constantly in the presence of Jesus Christ, my living hope. This is how you fight the devil. You fight the devil by making God your greatest good so that when your lesser goods are taken away, it doesn't destroy you. It doesn't devastate you. Criticism doesn't make you go, oh, my life is over. I can't, I can't, I can't, oh, somebody sent me a nasty email. I should stop being a pastor now. Well, what, wait, what just happened? What was I desiring? What was I after in the first place? Oh, my, I, I told my children not to do something and they turned on me. 
Well, wait, what were you after in the first place? Do you see it? Resist him, Peter says. Resist him. Resist the devil. How do we resist the devil? We resist the devil the way Revelation 12 teaches us to resist the devil. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, the devil, of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. How, church? How do we conquer the devil? By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. How do you resist the devil? Here's how. You remember, salvation is in Christ alone, the finished work of Christ. And then the word of your testimony, which simply just means that I have personally embraced that finished work of Jesus Christ. That's how you resist the devil. You see, when he tries to accuse you, there's this great story. I wasn't going to go here. Yeah, but I'm going to go there. There's this Zechariah chapter 3 is one of the greatest chapters in your whole Bible. Zechariah chapter 3 sets the stage. High priest Joshua is standing in the presence of God. He's the high priest of Israel. He's the high priest of Israel. And the Bible says he's standing in front of God and Satan is standing next to him to accuse him. And here it is. He's covered in filth. Literally his own poo. He's covered in filth. The high priest, who is supposed to be pure, in pure clothes, spotless clothes, these guys would, would wash, dress, undress, wash, dress, undress, wash, dress, undress, three times before they entered into the tabernacle just to make sure they got it right. And here's high priest Joshua standing in front of God with Satan ready to accuse him. And, and Zechariah says that the Lord God says, I rebuke you, Satan, I rebuke you, Satan. And then the angel of the Lord steps forward, who we believe is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ steps forward, looks at Joshua, same name, by the way, Jesus. He looks at high priest Joshua and says, take the dirty clothes off him, put on clean clothes, put on a clean turban. Amen. How do you resist the devil? You remember that standing in heaven is an accuser, but also standing in heaven is Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has said once and for all, take the dirty clothes off him, take the dirty clothes off her, and put on the clean clothes. Put on the turban. Can you see that? Can you see yourself there? And then rather than putting ourselves under the accusations of Satan, instead we submit ourselves. Verse 6, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why be humble? Because there is a mighty hand of God. The mighty hand of God. This is humility with hope. Humility with hope. We can be humble because we have a mighty God. The mighty hand of God, that's a common phrase all throughout the Old Testament. Peter's drawing from the Old Testament. The mighty hand of God almost always refers to the deliverance of God. It's mentioned several times in the book of Exodus. I'm going to bring my people out of Egypt by my mighty hand. I'm going to deliver you by my mighty hand. 
So we, are, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. But it is also, it's also a reference to Jesus himself. In Isaiah 53, in Isaiah 52, Isaiah 52, verse 10, it says that God will bear his holy arm. The nations will gather, the kings will gather, and God will bear his holy arm, his holy, mighty hand. And then Isaiah 52 runs obviously into Isaiah 53, doesn't it? In Isaiah 53, verse 1, it says, To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Do you remember this? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And then he proceeds to describe the crucified Christ. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Do you see, that's the plot twist. That's the paradox of the gospel. That the mighty hand of God struck the hand of God. The mighty hand of God struck God, Jesus, God, on the cross. Why? So that you and I would never have to be stricken by the mighty hand of God and instead could be rescued by the mighty hand of God. Surely he has borne our sorrows. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to their own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you believe that this morning? Are you trusting in that? Or are you trusting in the cosmic scale of your good versus your bad? Or are you trusting in a finished work by a righteous Savior? Which will you trust today? Which will you submit yourself to today? What does placing myself under the mighty hand of God look like? It looks like verse 7, casting all my anxieties on Him because He cares for you. See, if I say to you, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that can sound terrifying, can it? If we just ended at verse 6, praise God for verse 7. What does it mean to humble myself under the mighty hand of God now that I know that the mighty hand of God is Jesus on the cross? It means cast all my cares on him. Not cast some of your cares. Not cast the big ones. Cast all your cares on him. Why? He goes to the heart of God, doesn't he? He takes us from the power of God to the heart of God because He cares about you. He loves you. He cares about everything you care about. He, care, he cares about your job. He cares about your grandkids. He, he cares. He cares about that relationship that's stressed out. He cares that you... Are, are not making as much money as you want to be making and, and, it's, and it's hard. And you're, and you're trying to take care of your family and every day you're just scrimping and surviving. He cares about that. He cares about it. He cares about your pain. He cares about your suffering. He cares about the people that reject you and hurt you. He cares about all of it. Every detail of your life is God's concern. 
the mighty hand of God will exalt you. Verse 6, back to verse 6. In the proper time, he will exalt you. Verse 10, after you have suffered a a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I don't know about you, but that's what I want. If you're putting, Brady, if you're putting a choice in front of me, the devil and cosmic scale or the mighty hand of God where God himself will restore, strengthen, and establish me, to me that's a no-brainer, y'all. That's a no-brainer. I don't know why anybody's rejecting this offer. Don't reject it today. Don't reject it today. Number two. Two contrasting ways to view your life. Hopeless or hopeful. Okay, now that we know, now that, now that we know that there's these two opposing powers, and by the way, the mighty hand of God will win. These are not equal powers. All of Scripture teaches us that God and His omnipotence and sovereignty is, is overruling Satan in this world. Right? Satan doesn't, Satan doesn't blink without God approving of it or knowing about it. So now that I know that, and I know that I have a God who cares for me, I know that a God, I have a God who will exalt me, I know that I have a God who will establish me, now the question is, how will I view my life? What is my life? How do I see myself? How do I see my situation? Do I see my life as full of hopelessness or full of hope? You see, the question, the question isn't, am I going to suffer or am I not going to suffer? That's not the question. That question's been answered. You are going to suffer. The question isn't, am I gonna, is, is not, am I going to suffer or am I not going to suffer? That's not the question. The question is, will I suffer with hope or will I suffer with hopelessness? That's the question. That's the question that Peter's been answering for five chapters. Hopelessness. Hopelessness. Hopelessness comes when we place our hope in something lesser than God. See, listen to me. Every single one of you is placing your hope in something. If something got you out of bed this morning, something gets you moving, something is keeping you alive, some sort of hope. We don't do anything without a hope attached to it. A a hope that at the end something will happen. A hope of a paycheck. A hope that the food I'm preparing will taste good when I'm done making it. A hope that the, the show I'm watching will, will satisfy me by the time I binge watch it all. We do everything from hope. I'm raising my kids from hope. I'm going to work from hope. I came to church this morning with some sort of hope. We do everything from hope. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Right? No hope, sick heart. The question is, where is your hope? Is it on a lesser hope that is easily low-hanging fruit, easily obtained, obtained, but easily dashed? And what hope do we offer to one another when we're talking to each other, when we're listening to each other? Somebody's struggling, 
They get together with you over coffee. They lay out all their problems, and you look at them, and, and you, 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 you know, I mean, well-meaning. It's going to be okay. Well, why? Why will it be okay? On, on what do you base this? I lost my job. Well, it's going to be okay. You're going to get a better job. Really? And you know this how? You have a crystal ball? You're a prophet? What is, I mean, how do you know that? My wife is sick. It's okay. She's going to be okay. How? How do you know that? Is that, is that promised in Scripture? Is my, my wife doesn't get sick promised in the Bible? I get the job promotion? Is that in here? You see, you, you better take me to something that's actually true. Right? In this whole letter, Peter never says, hey, buck up, everybody, it's going to be okay. This whole persecution thing, it's going to blow over. That verse isn't in here, is it? And what we know from history is that they're, they're, at, they're just at the beginning. Nero's about to go nuts. And, and literally, he will kill Peter, won't he? He will crucify Peter's wife and then crucify Peter upside down, according to church history. Peter's not writing a letter saying, hey, all this is going to blow over. It's all going to get better. The hope he offers them is an eternal, real hope, a meaningful hope. For something to be meaningful, for it to be real hope, it has to have two elements. It must be perfect and it must last forever. Anything in your life that isn't perfect or eternal will eventually let you down. Right? Now listen, it can sustain you for a while. You're feeling lonely, you go get a puppy, the puppy offers you some hope. Right? You feel better. But what eventually happens to the dog? The dog dies. Right? The dog is not eternal. The plant is not eternal. The job is not eternal. Your kids are not eternal. I mean, this church, Grace Baptist Church, is not eternal. Not, not, not in the physical sense. You, you with me? We have to offer each other eternal, meaningful hope. And there is only one thing in the universe that can offer eternal, meaningful hope. The living hope of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ alone, and you know, God, the Trinity, is perfect and forever. Perfect and forever. That's what we must be offering to each other. Not lesser low-hanging hopes. And so verse 14, our hope is in Christ. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, look at how Peter offers hope. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. Look at that language. Do you use that language? <laughs> is, that, is that what you said in your last small group? Is that the language you used over coffee two weeks ago? You're going to suffer a little while. Do you know what he's saying? And then you're going to die. 
Your suffering will end when you die. And then when you die, what do you get? The eternal glory of Christ. Church, that's what we're being offered. Nothing less, nothing more. There is, there is nothing more. It's the ultimate. We are restored to all that we are meant to be. Eternal glory in Christ. We're back. We're back. We're back to what we were, we were meant to be. Ruling side by side with Jesus. Psalm 8, crowned with glory and honor. Just imagine that. Imagine that. I can't promise you anything else. Now look, look, sometimes we need the lesser hopes, don't we? I, I get it. Listen, I get it. Sometimes a person, they're not ready for the eternal glory of Christ. And so, you, and so yes, it's nice when you can offer them a little bit of temporary hope, right? I'm not against that. I'm not trying, I'm not trying, to, I'm not trying to say don't do that. But here's what I'm saying. Make sure that if you are offering one another the lesser temporal hopes, that you allow those to point the person to the eternal hope in Christ. You with me, church? This is the hope that allows us to be holy. This is the hope that allows us to be humble. What have we heard in this letter so far? We've heard submit, be subject, be subject, be subject, over and over again. Submit your lives. Uh, be humble. Suffer, but suffer without seeking revenge. Suffer without opening your mouth. Suffer without arguing back. Cast all your cares on God. How in the world? Resist the devil. What? How do I do that? Love each other. Be hospitable greet each other with love we're hearing all of this and listen it's only possible if we have hope it's only possible if we have hope because if we settle for lesser hopes here's what happens we spend our whole life managing those hopes don't we if my children are my hope I spend my whole life obsessed over my own children living and dying by what they do how they turn out probably driving them crazy in the process. And I lose track of what it means to actually love and pray and be humble. Do you see it? If my career is my hope, I'm going to spend my whole life just managing that, aren't I? My, my career will take over. And along that journey, it will destroy me because I'll forget how to love my family, I'll forget how to serve my church, because I, I'm putting in 80 to 90 hours a week. Because that's my hope. Only a true, lasting, eternal hope can allow us to be humble, allow us to be holy. And then number three, two complementary ways to express your union with Christ, passively and actively. And this, I'm just, uh, I just, I, I wanted to do this. I felt like the Lord was asking me to do this because it's not, it's not just something that's in this little section we read. It's really the whole letter. It's really the whole New Testament. It's really how, how we need to read all the epistles and see our, our life in Christ. Peter says in verse 14 that we are in Christ. He also says it in verse 10. Peace to, this is how he ends, the last two words of the letter. 
Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Now, in Christ, that's Paul's, that's Paul's game, right? Paul will say, in Christ, in Christ. Ephesians chapter 1, he says that we are in Christ like 14 times in 20 verses. Peter hasn't said it yet, but he says it here. Being in Christ is so important. Understanding the theology of what it means to be in Christ and Christ in you, Christian. This is everything. To be in Christ means that Christ is our representative. So, what Christ has done as our representative has been done for us. We benefit from all he has done. So, all of his righteousness, yours. All of his goodness, yours. Right? His death, yours. His resurrection, yours. His ascension, yours. His seating in glory, yours. Why? Because he's your representative. Which leads to our participation. We participate with Christ. Because we are in Christ and Christ is in us, he represents us, and now we participate with him. Again, everything that he does, you do. Oh, by the way, Christ suffered, what do you do? Suffer. Why? Because we participate with Christ. We sh- that was the sermon a couple weeks ago. We share in the sufferings of Christ. This representation and participation leads to our transformation. We are then transformed into Christ. Are you with me? So note takers, representation, participation, transformation. That's what it means to be in Christ and have Christ in you. Christ, I am in Christ, this is my position. Christ in me, this is my condition. I am in Christ, this is expressed passively. Christ in me is expressed actively. He's living out his life through me. Is everybody with me? Passive, active. And so, oceans of ink have been spilt on which is it? (laughs) How do you live the Christian life? Do you live the Christian life passively or actively? And here's the answer. Yes. Yes. Those who go too far passive, I sit around, I contemplate Jesus, and he magically changes me somehow. <laughs> let go and let God. Those who go too far active, everything's legalism and moralism and do, do, strive, strive, work harder, do more, right? God helps those who help themselves. Both wrong. Both wrong. Here's how it works. Here's the Christian life. We work at resting, and we work from resting. Notice that resting is the core position of the Christian life. The book of Hebrews says, Strive, one of the great paradoxical statements in all the Bible, he says this, Strive to enter rest. Work to rest. That's the Christian life. Working at resting. Working at trusting the finished work of Jesus. To die. it is finished. We don't work to earn a place in heaven. We don't work to, to achieve status with God. This is not a performance that we're putting on for, for God. 
We are in Christ. We must rest in Christ. We must work at resting. And then from that rest, we work. We do good. We love. We serve. We see this in the letter. We see Peter expressing the finished work of Jesus, Christ's dominion, verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. He's on the throne. This thing is done. Do you understand, church, that this thing is done? There is nothing left for Jesus to do. I hope you understand that. There is no more work for Jesus to do. There's nothing left for him to check off his list. There's, There's nothing left for him to accomplish in order for your salvation to be secure. Nothing. From that, we continue to work. And so we look at the verbs in here, the commands. They are commands that bring us into rest. Verse 6, command, commandment, humble yourself. In other words, put, just put yourself under God. Let God do it. Let God do the work. Humble yourself. Go lower and lower. This is not about climbing a ladder. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is, I am letting God do His work, but I have to work at that, don't I? Because everything inside of me is screaming the other way. The, dev, the roaring devil lion is, is trying to convince me that i got to do more. That I have to live some sort of amazing life. Cast your cares. Verse 7. Watch Be sober. Resist the devil. What amazing language. Verse 9. Notice what it does not say. Go out there and fight the devil. Go out there and start swinging. You know, the Bible never says that, does it? You know what the Bible says? Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to do what? Charge? Stand. Stand. Verse 12, stand in faith. Stand firm in the grace of God. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Verse 12. We we work at resting, but we also work from our rest. You know, the parallel passage is back in chapter 4. Let your eyes go back to chapter 4, verse 7. Stay with me. I'm almost done, I promise. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Here's what, here's what he said. The end of all things is at hand. Do you know what that means? Again, it means it's all done. Jesus could come back now. Jesus could come back now. No, 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 no. God still has to, Brady, God still has to do X, Y, and Z before Jesus can come. Nope. No. Jesus could come back right now. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded. Notice how that parallels with the section, that, the section we just read. Be sober-minded. Above all, and then verse 8, love one another. Nine, four, chapter 4, verse 9, show hospitality. 10, use your gifts. Speak, serve. And then notice how verse 11 ends. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. How did chapter 5 verse 11 end? To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
When we put the two side by side, we get the Christian life. What is the Christian life? The Christian life is a life of rest. We work at resting, and then we work from resting. But we must start at rest. Are you at rest, Christian? Are you at rest? We must ask the questions in this order. The order on the screen, the order on your screen is important. You have to start with this question. Am I at rest? If you're not, if you're not, then all of your works will be dead works, as Hebrews calls them. They will be works meant to to pull yourself up, to declare your own worthiness. They will be works that spit in the face of grace. And once we've answered that first question, are you at rest? Then we can answer the second question. Are you at work? Are you working from your rest? I pray that that will be what we are, church. Truly, we will live up to our name. What's our name? Grace. Grace Baptist Church. Grace being our core identity in Christ, working at our resting. We come in here together to work at resting together. And then in a minute, we sing, we pray, we send you out of here. And what are you doing as you walk out of these doors? You're working from your resting. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you have granted us rest. God, you, are, you, you have shown us. You, you created everything in six days, and on the seventh day, you rested. Never to create anything ever again. That work has stopped. And we, and we, we live from the joy and abundance and bounty of that work. We rest within the creation work every day. Jesus, your work on the cross is no different. But it is the new creation work, the spiritual work inside of us, where you have created in us a new thing. You have placed us into yourself. You have placed yourself into us. God, I pray for anybody here this morning who's still falling under that that system of the devil, still trying to make sure that their good outweighs their bad. God, that is not rest. That's the exact opposite of rest. That is stress. That is trouble. That is is never knowing if your good is good enough. Jesus, you have created a better way. The way through your body, your blood, through the curtain of your life. What you have done has brought us into the presence of God. We sit at his feet like Mary. God, now may we from that rest, walk out of here, walk into the world that you have given us, and do good. Be humble. Love. Be hospitable. Serve. Speak. Greet one another with love. And we ask all of this humbly in the name of Jesus. Amen.